It's four weeks until America decides who its next president is going to be. In typical fashion, the polls are tightening and the swing states are as wobbly as ever. On today's show, we get the lowdown from the key battleground state of Ohio, our panel digests the week's news from the campaign trail and Shane Hannon takes us inside the White House. Plus, why is the gay vote moving towards Trump? The Donald versus Uncle Joe, the reality TV star versus the DC veteran, Red versus Blue. This is News Talk, and you're listening to Race to the White House. He was only a good vice president because he understood how to kiss Barack Obama's ass. I'm ready to give him a new nickname, the former President Trump. We've done more in this administration than any president in the history of our country. We're in a battle for the soul of the nation. Hello, everyone. I'm Simon Tierney, and you're listening to Race to the White House, News Talk's weekly coverage of the U.S. presidential election. Do get in contact with us via Twitter. You can find us at News Talk FM or at Tierney Simon. It's been another colourful week on the campaign trail. We've had the first of three debates, described brilliantly by one commentator as a hot mess inside a dumpster fire inside a train wreck. Ah yes, nothing sums up America's founding principle of e pluribus unum than two old white dudes in a dogfight. Now, have a listen to this. Here is Trump speaking to Sean Hannity on Fox News just a few hours before he was tested for COVID. I just went for a test and we'll see what happens. I mean, who knows? But you know Hope very well. She's fantastic and she's done a great job. But it's very, very hard uh, when you are with people from the military or for law enforcement and they come over to you and they, they want to hug you and they want to kiss you because we really have done a good job for them. And you get close and things happen. Hugging and kissing? Sure, those things were banned months ago, Donald. And so... The president's positive test for COVID-19 has ignited a predictable tsunami of thoughts and prayers messages from his Republican colleagues. It is baffling that every time something dreadful happens in the States, from a school shooting to the commander-in-chief getting struck down by the virus, that the Republicans call for prayer rather than action. Surely the fact that their leader has now contracted it means that there should finally be a united, bipartisan call to properly, meaningfully confront this virus once and for all. Now, to discuss this, I'm joined by our panel, Greg Swenson, spokesperson for Republicans Overseas, and Graham Finlay from the School of Politics and International Relations in UCD. Let me go to you, Greg, first. Um, Do you think that the president's diagnosis will shift Republican voters' view on the election? No, I don't. I think, if anything, it'll probably enhance it. I, I think the two challenges um, in terms of getting, uh, you know, proceeding with the election, the obvious one is that he really relishes and does well when he does the campaign rallies and, and flies into airports and has people greeting him at hangars and on the tarmac. So, you know, that's something obviously he can't do for two weeks. And so I think that's a setback for the campaign for sure. But no, I can't imagine that Republicans would would fade at all. Um, and if anything, it'll, it'll maybe even pick up some momentum for him. His message, um, Greg, has been that the virus is going away. Um, d- does this not dent that? Well, look, I think, you know, he, he's often taken, you know, these quotes are often taken out of context or in different contexts. You know, he's tried to instill some confidence in the country. 
um, while, while making sure to protect the vulnerable and address the, the virus and the pandemic in the right way, he's also tried to maintain that confidence for the country. So, and you know, there's a big difference between what he's done and what the media implies that he has done or hasn't done. And if you look at his actual accomplishments, his actual outcomes from the way he's handled the pandemic, he's actually accomplished all of the things that Vice President Biden has talked about in his, in his so-called plan. So, you know, to, to a certain degree. And, and look, it's not perfect. I don't think anyone would argue that. I think the president's biggest weakness on the corona pandemic was the press, the early press conferences back in March and April, which were often, you know, sort of meandering and unfiltered. But in terms of, you know, actually treating the virus and those, you know, often you see these quotes, yes, it will go away. If you take that literally, at some point it will. Um, you know, does, does he message perfectly? No. But what he's done is struck the right balance between taking it seriously, obviously, and addressing what he can address, which is, you know, initially it was ventilators, it was making sure hospitals were provided, to, um, to the, especially to the New York and New Jersey area, and then it was masks, and it was PPE, and it was, you know, and then it was moved on to, to treatments as well as okay. um, accelerating yeah, sure. the, the vaccine creation. So he's actually done a pretty, you know, a pretty good job. Okay, Graham, let me go to you. I'm interested in your thoughts on whether you think the diagnosis casts a different light on the Democratic candidate, Joe Biden. Again, I, I, I agree with Greg that I don't think it's going to make a big difference to voters in terms of their voting intention. Joe Biden came out and, and in a very classy way, um, sent his thoughts, if not his prayers, to, to uh, Donald Trump and the First Lady. Um, I, I think... I think it will bolster Biden's case that you know, Donald Trump didn't take uh, COVID-19 sufficiently seriously because he has been flouting both state and federal restrictions and advice throughout this period, maybe most obviously at the beginning when he was urging his supporters to liberate various states which had more severe restrictions, um, whatever that means. But he, um, you know, he's been going to these mass rallies without social distancing. He's been launching his campaign from the White House without social distancing. He very rarely is seen wearing a mask. And um, Hope Hicks, who seems to be the source of the COVID, you know, was seen without a mask on Air Force One. It, it isn't, you know, I think it really will bring home to people that Donald Trump has failed to lead on this issue. I mean, he has failed to lead by example. And in, you know, in the area of, of equipment and ventilators, especially in the early months, um, there was considerable stockpiling by the federal government competing with the states in terms which were hardest hit in terms of ventilators, in terms of equipment. And indeed he was intending to send those to places which he thought were going to vote for him. He wanted to vote for him like Florida and deny it to places which wouldn't. Okay. Um Greg, you heard Graham there. He says that the president has failed to lead on the COVID crisis. I mean that's a statement that I think most Americans would now agree on, no? No. Uh, but I, I, I don't I can't argue because it's it's a very subjective viewpoint, and and I think and it and it, it obviously goes down, you know, a split right along party lines, um, and so I wouldn't agree that the majority of Americans don't think so. Now, granted, he was polling very poorly on that in the beginning, and I think if you look at you know Andrew Cuomo, for example, who had a horrendous experience and and um, you know sent the eleven thousand people back to care homes, which created all kinds of chaos. His, his delivery and his execution were horrible, but yet his messaging was really positive. You know, those, those press conferences were brilliant. And I think that if Trump had done the same thing, I think he, he'd have a, a, there'd be a much different perspective. But look, I think if anything, um, you know, this could bring 
the corona topic back to the to the top of the list for what voters are interested in but i don't think that'll happen with republicans and you can look at it whether you poll and you see you see that republicans consider the economy is the most important thing well greg you, you hit on a really interesting point there because you, sure. you're saying that this is going to bring focus back onto COVID. But it seems in many ways that the GOP have been trying to steer the campaign away from COVID. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, look, in, in purely tactical terms, the campaign's smart enough to know that, that, the, that the, um, if the number one issue is the, is the pandemic, that's not good for the president. If the number one issue is the economy, which is very good for the president, that would be great. So from, from a purely tactical perspective, you're absolutely right. I don't know how it can... I'm not sure that this this whole the last 24 hours is going to help that cause because it's it's bringing it to the attention and that might be temporary. Um, you know, I think that the president will still uh, will still try to message that what he's actually done and accomplished as opposed to what the media has says he's he's done or hasn't done. And then also talk about the economy because the economy is quite related. You know, you can't you can't beat the virus without a solid economy. You can't uh, necessarily beat the um you can't have a great economy without dealing with the virus of course and that's why sure. he's had to strike the right <clears throat> balance and i think he's done a, a great job at doing that and he'll continue to lead that way okay um in terms of campaign styles then it's interesting graham because a lot of there's been a lot of criticism from certain quarters in the states that uh you know people will say uh, biden has been in his basement that he's he hasn't been meeting and greeting obviously the reasons for that are are clear because of COVID and everything associated with that. But there does it's it's hard to imagine how Americans see those optics because on the TV nearly every night you've got Trump in front of thousands of people at his rallies, and then you've got this really unfortunate optic of Joe Biden in empty halls, not actually connecting with anyone. Is that troublesome? Do you think? Um, I, I mean, I don't know how troubled the Biden people are. He just went on this train trip, you know, through various swing states, ending up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And that's that's good Biden material. You know, he loves the train and he, he likes to he likes to talk to people. Um, I think under the current circumstances, his low key approach is probably the best. I mean, I'm not going to go on record as saying Joe Biden is the greatest candidate or that he's a particularly strong public speaker or, or, or any of that. And so if the Democrats' goal is to just remind people that Biden's around but not have him out there too much, that could be enough because people – and I think Greg and I you know, may or may not agree about this – but people have really made their minds up about Donald Trump and to a certain degree True. about Joe Biden. And you know, so Joe Biden just has to continue to sort of exist, and he'll have done his job. Um, he – you know, at this time, he doesn't feel like having big rallies and, and, and lots of meet and greets is the appropriate thing to do. And given that the majority of Americans are actually more worried about their health and about the COVID pandemic and opening up too early than they are worried about the economic consequences of, 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 of not opening up fast enough, being seen to be safe, sure. to be um, you know, mindful of other people's health seems to be helping them among seniors and some other people who are worried about getting sick. With regard to whether or not these undecided voters have finally swung one way or the other, uh, Greg... All these people who are turning up for Trump's rallies, which have now presumably come to an end, are they all Republicans? No, and that's what's really interesting. And, and look, Graham and I agree on a lot of things. And I, I think that Biden 
actually made a good move by by laying low. I mean, retail politicking has changed. I mean, how many votes are you really going to get by shaking hands and kissing babies, you know, at a, at a at a pancake breakfast? That's that was the old days, but you know, it's changed now. You have social media, you have you have different mediums. So, look, to answer your question, I, I think that there are not a lot of persuadables. If you look at undecideds, it's 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 probably not something that's going to work. I think this becomes a turnout election, and when you look at those rallies, first of all, Simon. I think they will continue. That it will continue for for two more weeks. But you do have you know two to three weeks left after the quarantine is over. So we'll see how he recovers and if he's able to do it. But what's interesting is that the Duluth, Minnesota rally the other night, 60% of the attendees were not Republican. And you know these rallies, needless to say, for for security reasons, but also for data mining reasons, you know they they get information on everybody who attends and their security checks, and so they get all the data. 60% were not Republican. 21% were Democrat, 17% did not vote in 2016, and 8% have not voted in the last four elections. That's amazing data, which is hard to capture by the pollsters. It's hard to capture with traditional metrics. And, and by the way, I mean, I give you those numbers because you asked, but I, I don't know that that mean, what that means for the outcome of the election. I can just tell you that it could be really unpredictable, and I'm not really, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be really hard to call this one. I guess that brings us on to the polls because um, the latest poll of polls that I looked at before we began the show today demonstrates that Biden is leading on 50 points to Trump on 41 points nationally. So that's a lead of about nine points. Uh, well, exactly nine points. Um, now, we will be speaking to Anne Guerin from The Washington Post shortly about Ohio um, in particular, but in terms of nationally, Graham, I mean, one tends to be very sceptical about a national poll with a lead of nine points because we are reminded of what happened in 2016 and how wrong the polls were then. No, indeed. And actually, Greg's right that we do agree about a lot of things. Um, you know, the one thing we can predict is that this is going to be unpredictable. Um, I, that's a big lead. Uh, that's bigger than Hillary Clinton's lead. But again, a national poll, as we found out in 2016, doesn't matter much if you don't win the right states, right? So if you look at the state results, there are some states, and there's a lot, of, a lot of reasons for the Biden campaign to be fairly happy, but not complacent in some of the key swing states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, which cost him last time, or cost Hillary Clinton last time. But, you know, which is good because he could lose then Ohio and Florida and and still get into the White House. The the electoral ballot, you know, the electoral college uh, vote would be close enough that that there'd be lots of controversy surrounding that. But I think you know the polls are are, are important. But as as Greg said, turnout is going to be even more important. And turnout in a an election where people are voting early and voting by mail ballot is going to be very very crazy. And um, you know one thing which is true is that. The Democrats in 2016 were fighting the last war and were really focusing on get out the vote, whereas the Republicans had moved on to using Facebook ads and then social media to deter people from bringing out the vote, especially African-Americans. And um, they are, were at least in advance for that kind of thing um, in the last election, and it may, may, may carry the day for them again this time. Greg, one of the most bizarre aspects of what happened in 2016 was that Trump garnered more votes from women than Hillary did. Do you think women will flock back to Donald this time or will Biden, even though he's not a woman, uh, yeah. will he have a better chance? Yeah, look, I, I think the, the big metric 
aside from the gender issues, um, is that Hillary was just downright unlikable. And so that's the reason she didn't win women, especially um, in certain demographics. Well, and, she was likable um, enough I, to win three million more votes in the popular uh, uh, votes. Well, right. No, I know. Likable enough, but not like enough, likable enough to win. And, and you even said, you know, that she didn't win uh, the woman vote, which is amazing. And so it just and by the way, 13 percent of her, her votes were from California. So as Graham pointed out, it's all about the states and, and the electoral college. But I think the, the, the benefit that, Mr. that Vice President Biden has is that you don't have that that big group that you had in 16 of of people who said, I don't like either candidate. And Trump ended up winning more of that demographic or more of that that um, silo. And so this time around, you don't have that silo. You either. You know, a lot of people don't like the president, but but there aren't as many people that downright dislike Vice President Biden. He's not a dislikable guy. You might not like his policies and you might not like the way the parties move to the progressive left. But, you know, there there is no there is no silo of I hate both candidates this year, this time around. So that's that's to, to Vice President Biden's great benefit. OK, um, then the silent Trump voter. This is what pollsters uh, get sleepless nights over because uh, perhaps it's skewing what their results are. Um, Graham, uh, is this a real thing? It's hard to tell. Um, I think there were a lot of silent Trump voters in 2016. These might have been people who, you know, for lots and lots of reasons, had their problems with Donald Trump, but they, they I mean, ultimately liked most of the policies they expect him to bring in. Some of them still like the policies he's been able to bring in, especially people who um, really value uh, judges um, a very conservative federal judges, of which he's placed a huge number in place, and really care about them for issues like abortion. So those people, uh, we don't know how they're going to break. They've been tested by Donald Trump many, many times in terms of his personal behavior and in terms of his general attitude towards a number of issues which aren't these people's core issue. Um, whether these people turn up um, is, is a big thing, and, uh, or, or whether if Amy Coney Barrett gets on the Supreme Court, they'll, they'll feel like their job is done and they won't show up. We really don't know. And, um, but the silent Trump voter who actually is really on board with Donald Trump, I think that, that voter is gone. Um, that person's either an overt, non-silent voter for Trump, or they may have reconsidered. So, Graham, what does Joe Biden do now? Because he's suddenly in a position where his opponent isn't flying all over the country meeting thousands of people. I think Joe Biden um, keeps doing what he's been doing. I mean, he's out of the basement, right? Um, and Kamala Harris is, um, you know, going to uh, lots of important states on, on his behalf, and, and including Wisconsin, where famously the Democrats failed to, to, to campaign enough. So I think he lets her go out and be a very effective surrogate, especially in certain parts of the country and in, to certain groups. Um, I also think that he keeps making speeches like he did in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Johnstown, Pennsylvania is a very conservative town which has lost a lot over the last few decades. It's in the middle of uh, Western Pennsylvania, where you see a lot of anti-abortion billboards and, and people have it tough. And he made a good speech there about how he's a, a regular guy from Scranton um, who, who's been fighting guys like Donald Trump all his life. So I think he keeps playing that card and he brings the fight to actually areas where Donald Trump did incredibly well to win states like okay. Pennsylvania. And he said he just needs to make a dent in Trump's vote. Sure. He doesn't have to win it. He just has to make a dent. Um, Greg, what is the what is President Trump going to do for the next two weeks? I mean, is he just going to sit at home in his boxer shorts watching Fox and Friends all day? 
I don't know if he'll do that. Uh, he's, he's, he's still working in spite of showing some symptoms today. Uh, you know, it just depends what his condition is like. Look, he, he might transition quickly to more of an electronic campaign in, in addition to what he's doing, uh, running the White House or running the country. But um, look, I, I don't know. I think that, you know, he'll, he'll, this will obviously force him to use a different kind of, you know, maybe even a, a Joe Biden or, a, you know, type of campaigning, you know, doing Zoom calls, doing um, electronic events, you know, who knows. But I think he'll, he'll fight this. He'll bounce back. And my guess is okay. he'll come out. You know, he'll come out after the quarantine and he'll get right back to the rallies and right back to the campaign events. Greg Swenson, spokesperson for Republicans Overseas, and Graham Finlay from the School of Politics and International Relations in UCD. Thank you both, and I hope you'll join us again on Race to the White House. Thank you both. Now, the election is going to be decided by a handful of swing states. Over the next few weeks, we're going to travel to these battlegrounds to see which way the pendulum is swinging. In 2016, Trump surprised pollsters and carried Ohio by eight points. But this year looks set to be much tighter indeed. Let's go to Anne Guerin now from The Washington Post. Anne, you were in Ohio earlier in the week. Do you think that the debate managed to shift public opinion in the state? Well, Simon, we don't have any really good, fresh uh, polling since the debate on Tuesday night uh, that is specific to Ohio. Uh, I think that that's one of the main things that we're waiting to see, uh, whether the debate had any uh, effect on Ohio voters. Uh, but the president has been trailing there. And uh, what he really needed to do in the debate is go beyond his base of pretty quite solid and unchanging base of support and attract new voters. The uh, the general takeaway from his performance at the debate is that it was not uh, something that would bring in new voters. It would energize people who are already supporting him, but not give new people uh, a particular reason to choose him now. Okay. And how significant is Ohio in terms of the Electoral College compared to, say, Pennsylvania or Florida? Well, those are the three uh, big ones among among the swing states. Uh, Florida has the most uh, Electoral College votes, and then we have uh, Pennsylvania and Ohio as, as the other big ones. They're obviously extremely different states. Uh, Florida is really, um, you know, it, it's every state in, in, in America and a number of countries overseas packed into one state. Uh, but uh, Ohio and, and Pennsylvania, the other big uh, sweepstakes states, because, uh, of course, it's winner-take-all in the Electoral College in, in, every, in almost every state, um, including those two. Uh, you know, those are, are uh, Midwestern states um, where there is a real mix of voters that uh, were, in many cases, traditional Democrats uh, outside the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, ma- the major cities. Um, and many of those uh, areas and voters have trended Republican for years and went for Trump in a big way. What he needs to do this year is is give those voters a, a reason to choose him again, even though they are in many cases sort of um, constitutionally and situationally democratic, uh, including union voters, uh, and you know without the benefit of some really big particular thing that they can point to that w- was a benefit from them 
uh, economically or uh, culturally, situationally from having uh, voted for Trump the first time. Do you think the black vote is going to be very significant uh, in terms of uh, Biden getting over the line in Ohio? Absolutely. Um, uh, in, in a number of states, uh, uh, Michigan included, uh, but uh, but definitely in, in, in Ohio. Ohio has uh, three uh, quite large cities. I mean, in, in uh, by the scale of, of uh, you know, of the United States, the uh, Cincinnati, Cleveland and uh, Columbus are, are mid-sized cities, uh, but all uh, are concentrations of urban uh, voters which tend to, to vote uh, Democratic, both black and white, and they are definitely uh, the, the concentration of black voters in that state. Uh, that is not the, the population that, that Trump was uh, appearing to talk to much of the time uh, on Tuesday night. Sure. Uh, I suppose um, the very nature of a swing state means that there is the existence of a population of undecided voters. And I suppose we find it difficult sometimes on this side of the Atlantic to understand how there can still at this stage be undecided voters in the states because the choice seems so stark. The candidates represent such different ideas. Uh, can you try and reconcile that for us? Well, we ask the same question here. It's, a, it, it's the right question to ask. Uh, it, it, it seems sort of to boggle the mind that there would be uh, people who do not have an opinion or do not have a preference um, who are planning to vote. Uh, one one thing we, we talk about, uh, I, I think, a, a lot is whether, you know, under the, the general category or, you know, sort of lump uh, label of, of undecided voters, you really have a lot of people who haven't either entirely 100 percent decided to vote at all um, or who are really strongly leaning to one candidate or another, but are reluctant to say so. Okay, fine. Uh, we don't really have a category for that. And I, before I let you go, I have to ask you, um, in 2008, Ohio went blue. Same again in um, uh, twenty six. Uh, sorry, in 2012, it went blue. In 2016, yeah. it went red. Where is it going to go this year? Well, I can't... I can't entirely predict that for you uh, but um, certainly uh, the you know the, the president has been trailing there uh, pretty steadily uh, the the race is, is remarkably static uh, you can, can you consider all of the things that have happened in the last six to eight weeks we have we've had uh, major party conventions we've had uh, major protests in the streets we've had a worsening of the, the coronavirus pandemic uh, we've had the, the the start of the the presidential contest in earnest after the Labor Day holiday. We've had the first debate, uh, and we don't again. We don't have good polling yet from the first debate. But through all of those other things, the the race has really been very very static, tightening a little bit in some states, including in Ohio, but very much the same. So if it stays the same, uh, Biden will, will win in Ohio. Anne Guerin for the Washington Post. Thank you for joining us on Race to the White House. You're very welcome. Race to the White House on News Talk. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can find me on Twitter at Tierney Simon. Now, let's wind back the clock. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. 
Kamala Harris made history in August of this year when she became the first woman of colour to be nominated as the vice presidential candidate of a major political party. But she's certainly not the first woman to get the nomination. Her predecessor, Sarah Palin, and her disastrous run in 2008 is still pretty fresh in the public imagination. But the first woman to run for Veep, Geraldine Ferraro, is perhaps less well known today. It was in 1984 the Democratic nominee for president, Walter Mondale, selected the New York Congresswoman Geraldine Ferraro to be his running mate against the Republican incumbents Ronald Reagan and George Bush Sr. I proudly accept your nomination for Vice President of the United States. Let me help you with the difference, Ms. Ferraro, between Iran and the embassy in Lebanon. Let me just say, first of all, that I almost resent Vice President Bush, your patronizing attitude that you have to teach me about foreign policy. That was Geraldine Ferraro debating George Bush Sr. in the VP debate in 84. Now, despite favourable polling initially, the GOP attack machine soon caught up with Ferraro. Bizarrely, it was actually First Lady Barbara Bush who landed the most personal attack on Ferraro. She famously declared on the campaign trail that she could not say on television what she thought of Ferraro, but it rhymes with rich. Despite the trailblazing efforts of the Democratic ticket, Reagan prevailed in a landslide in the 84 election. It came as a major surprise to most when Senator John McCain chose Sarah Palin as his running mate for the Republican ticket in 2008. The little-known governor of Alaska was thrust into the media spotlight in August of that year, causing a storm wherever she went with her no-nonsense hockey mom, pro-gun, pro-hunting thoughts and prayers, no goddamn book-learning brand of conservatism. Delegates and fellow citizens, I will be honoured to accept your nomination for Vice President of the United States. We believe in the forward movement of your freedom, not the constant expansion of government. And though our opponent disagrees with us on this one too, that freedom, it does include all the full rights and liberties under your Second Amendment too. I had the privilege of living most of my life in a small town. I was just your average hockey mom and signed up for the PTA. I love those hockey moms. You know, they say the difference between a hockey mom and a pit bull? Lipstick. Two times a try and two times America said no. And so to 2020. Joe Biden committed relatively early on to choosing a woman as his VP. In August of this year, he named Kamala Harris as his running mate. With her father born in Jamaica and her mother in India, Harris became both the first African-American and the first South Asian-American to become a nominee for the second highest office in the United States. I keep thinking about that 25-year-old Indian woman, all of five feet tall, who gave birth to me at Kaiser Hospital in Oakland, California. On that day, she probably could have never imagined that I would be standing before you now and speaking these words. I accept your nomination for Vice President of the United States of America. Now, let's turn our attention to a different aspect of election 2020. Considering the, let's say, conservative values of the Republican Party in the United States, it might be fair to assume that the LGBT community would largely support the Democrats. 
So it's surprising, therefore, to hear that a recent poll discovered that 45% of gay men intend to vote for Donald Trump on November the 3rd. The Republicans are now lapping up this support, of course. Have a listen to Eric Trump, the president's son on Fox News this week, followed by Richard Grenell, former acting director of National Intelligence. The LGBT community, they are incredible. And you should see how they've come out in in full force for my father every single day. I'm part of that community and we love the man. President Trump is the most pro-gay president in American history. I can prove it. My name is Rick Grinnell. I'm America's first openly gay cabinet member. President Trump has done more to advance the rights of gays and lesbians in three years than Joe Biden did in 40 plus years in Washington. Eddie Scarry joins me now, columnist with the Washington Examiner and author of new book, Grow Up and Vote for Trump, Why 2020 is Your Last Chance to Become an Adult. Eddie, thank you for joining us on the show. Um, Tell me, first of all, 45% of men in that poll intend to vote for President Trump. How can you explain that for us? Well, assuming that there has been at least some uptick in support for the president, I think you can attribute it to different things, as kind of always is the case is with in politics, but especially when it comes to President Trump. I think that it has a lot to do with what's going on in the U.S. And what we've seen over the last four months is rioting, looting, vandalism, um, the Black Lives Matter mob absolutely torching cities. I, I don't think I would need to explain it. There, are, <laughs> there is a natural aversion to violence among um, gays, but obviously I'm sure that's worldwide. But in in the U.S., that's true. Um, and then the other thing I think is, you know, gays tend to have actually, on average, uh, a higher income than straight Americans. And <laughs> when we see that Trump cut taxes, things were looking good for the 401ks for a lot of us. Um, I think that's another reason why. Okay, so the GOP this year for election 2020, they've decided not to create a new platform. So they've adopted their 2016, if I am correct. In the 2016 platform, they said in relation to that uh, decision on same-sex marriage, traditional marriage and family based on marriage between one man and one woman is the foundation for a free society. We condemn the Supreme Court's lawless ruling in Obergefell versus Hodges. That that shows to me, if I was a voter in this election, that gay marriage is not something that the Republicans agree with. Now, I know this is now part of the law of the land, but we know that the Supreme Court is changing and that Roe versus Wade, for example, from the 1970s, perhaps might be under threat. What's to say that gay marriage may also be under threat if people vote Republican? I can tell you that, one, most people in this country do not care about what the platforms are at the, the Republican convention, the Democratic convention. That's 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 hyped up by the media, I understand. And it can be kind of interesting, but most people are not pouring over <laughs> the platform of, of the Republican convention. But the it's, there convention. it's there in writing. It's there in writing what the Republican Party thinks. Um, and I can tell you otherwise that <laughs> the... Um, the Republicans, the ones in Washington, the elected officials in Washington, are not itching to have the gay marriage fight again. If anything, they're relieved to see that taken off the table. And why is that? It's because we've seen a massive cultural shift in this country where, we, you know, everyone knows someone who's gay. Um, the, the 
the pop culture element was a was a big part of it. You still, we had different shows where there were more gay characters introduced, and again, but people know gay people they have friends, they have family, um, they've kind of come to peace with that. And again, I don't think Republicans are itching to have that fight. I will even, I'll even point to actually President Trump back during the 2016 election. One, he was for the first time at a Republican convention. You had a speaker, Peter Thiel, was one of the a keynote speaker at the Republican convention. He said. I am out. I am gay. I'm supporting the president. That that has never happened at a Republican convention. Um, president Trump himself, he he said something about gays in his in his speech when he actually gave his convention speech. When he got a, a standing ovation, he said to the, the crowd, "You know what? As a conservative Republican, it feels really good to see you guys up cheering for that." And then again, when North Carolina was looking to pass a law that forbade forbade people that were or I guess to overturn a law, one of the two, that was about trans people and the restroom they wanted to use it. He said, you know what? I don't care about this. <laughs> so again, I just want to say that these are not issues that the president really seems to care about. No Republican is itching to have this fight again. Um, and I suppose it also suggests to us that um, a lot of gay voters in the states have conservative values. Sure. Yeah. But again, there are different, um, even if someone has a more traditional view or more conservative view when it comes to marriage, when it comes to abortion, when it comes to any number of things, um, they, they, they make the same calculation that anybody should be expected to make, which is, well, wh which one's more important to me, sure. which one am I, which am I willing to say, um, can take a backseat this election cycle. And I think uh, that, that has been the whole thing with Trump. They said, well, is it worth uh, <laughs> taking a chance on this um, reality TV game show host, or should we go with the, uh, the the top diplomat, the one who was first lady, the one who was a senator, the one who was again this, who led the State Department? They said, "Well, I think there are certain things that I'm willing to overlook, and certain things that are more important to me this election. It's it's going to be the same thing, the same thing this go around." Okay, I mean, I have to say, uh, Eddie. Is the, it strikes me as an outsider here over in Europe. Is there something cynical about, we heard that clip of Eric Trump there and the Republicans suddenly embracing the gay community when for years they didn't seem to add any value to those voters? Uh, if you're asking if um, politics is cynical, uh, you got me. <laughs> yes, I would say it's very cynical. But um, but on the other hand, I just I would say that you're looking at a family. They're all from New York. They come from what the most like <laughs> liberal of liberal places outside of D.C. Sure. In, in the U.S. Um, these are people that have lived in diverse a, a diverse city their entire lives. They've seen the world. And and again, I would say that this is why this was a big reason. Uh, why Trump was able to attract a lot of independents, a lot of disaffected Democrats in the country, because there was the, the understanding, I believe, that this is someone who comes, again, from a very diverse background, has seen the world, has seen, you know, lived in the city, the most diverse city we have here. Um, and, and he's not going to be painted into the box, which we've seen with last or, or previous Republicans, try as they might to do the whole racist thing, to do the whole bigot thing. Um, it didn't quite stick as well on this president, and I think for obvious reasons. Is there a gay identity in the Republican Party in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C.? 
Yeah, and I talked about this recently. It's I think it sh it would shock a lot of people to know is that um, the staff that actually works on Capitol Hill, meaning the you know the, the you have the the members, the representatives, the senators, their staff that supports them is very very gay. You know, I live in D.C. and there's a lot of gays that work on Capitol Hill, and it would be very surprising. And and also within the um, the Republican National Committee, the Democratic National Committee, um, those are both on Capitol Hill as well, but. It would be it would surprise a lot of people to see how gay the Republican side is. I, I, I know a lot of people personally that work on the Republican side. Um, sure. And what are they discreet about? They're not discreet about being gay. <laughs> They're discreet in D.C. about being Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, my last question, Eddie, is I understand that you are a gay man living and working in D.C. Do you feel enthused and passionate about voting for the Republicans as a gay man? Yes, I actually just wrote a book about it. And the whole thing is, even if you're not enthused, growing up means making painful decisions. But it's the responsible decision. Do what's right for your family. Do what's right for your future. Eddie Scarry, thank you so much for joining us from Washington, D.C. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Race to the White House with Simon Tierney on News Talk. Welcome back to Race to the White House. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can find me on Twitter, at Tierney Simon. But first, I need to make a phone call. Thank you for calling the White House. Yes, indeed. Thank you for calling the White House is a weekly item on the show where News Talk's Shane Hannon takes a deep dive into perhaps the most iconic building in the United States and how it works. Shane, thanks for joining us. This week, I believe you're giving us some background on the building itself. Yeah, we have to we have to kind of take a tour through the White House, I think, wherever uh, potentially Joe Biden or indeed Donald Trump for another four years will be from uh, November 3rd or even from January when the inauguration happens. But uh, quite a fascinating history the White House has. And I mean, John Adams was the first president to move in there in 1800, Simon. But the, the I guess a lot of Irish people will know the Irish link and James Hoban, this uh, architect with a Kilkenny background who kind of uh, was the man tasked with building the White House. So he... It was a man who he born in a, in a thatched cottage in Kilkenny, essentially raised on an estate belonging to the uh, the Earl of Desert down in Callan, uh, which will be familiar to Kilkenny listeners. But uh, he worked there as a wheelwright and carpenter until his early twenties, and then he was given uh, a student place in the Dublin Society's Drawing School. This is on uh, Lower Grafton Street. So, uh, quite an interesting background. Clearly a talented drawer and architect as well, and then moved to America after the Revolutionary War. So, he moved there in about eighteen or. Uh, just kind of just after that Revolutionary War and after a meeting with George Washington, that's when uh, it kind of became uh, his task to, to build the White House seat. So they met in Charleston in South Carolina, a place where uh, uh, James Hoban had uh, taken inspiration from a load of different buildings he had been working on. Leinster House as well, interestingly, was one of the buildings that he used as inspiration for, for the White House. So uh, quite a fascinating individual. Uh, died in 1831, but uh, a really interesting history. And the fact that we have an Irish link, I think, Simon, makes it quite interesting as well. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating, Shane, um, that there is that Irish connection. Now, just in terms of the building itself and how it's evolved, I was watching um, an early Aaron Sorkin movie 
the other night, uh, which is the American president from 1995 with Michael Douglas. And there's a really funny scene where he finds himself kind of lost in the White House and he calls it the dish room, which I believe is the China room. But it kind of, I suppose what Aaron Sorkin is trying to do is trying to illustrate just quite how vast and varied the rooms in the White House are. Yeah, the China Room is one of those rooms where it almost sounds like fantasy because of what's in it. Uh, it's hard not to think of China in Trump's uh, voice as well. But that'll be China, Sean. That'll be Shane. That'll be China. China. Yeah. So this is this is a room near the map room. So it's on the the ground floor of the White House. But uh, it was designated by the First Lady Edith, Edith Wilson in uh, 1917. So. Uh, before that, it was kind of used for different uh, methods, but from 1917 on, it housed the White House's growing collection of state China. So nearly every president essentially is represented in this China room. There are even examples of state China dating back to George Washington's presidency. So uh, back in the day, if, if there were bits of China kind of chipped or broken, uh, they would have been uh, sold off at auction and kind of money was made for the White House to buy a new China. But uh, even into the 20th century, China is often given away if it was chipped or broken. But then Congress passed a law that required all presidential China to be kept or destroyed. So uh, apparently when new dessert plates for the uh, Johnson administration turned out pretty badly, the White House staff smashed it against a basement wall uh, painted with caricatures of, of the president's assistants. So they were told, don't sell it, just destroy it. So I think some of the staff of the White House would have had a little bit of fun destroying some of the China in the White House over the years. There is this thing that each new administration gets the opportunity to kind of put their own stamp on the building, um, I suppose none more so than the Oval Office. Mm, yeah, the Oval Office, one of those rooms where the carpet kind of speaks volumes. And there are a couple of things that kind of stay put in the Oval Office. You've got the flags either side of that uh, desk, the Resolute desk, desk which Donald Trump used. Uh, and then you've got the floor and the carpet, which are quite extraordinary. But uh, yeah, the Oval Office has, has kind of changed over the years. Now, the Oval Office... To some people, it seems like one of the smaller rooms in the White House, but it's actually 816 square feet or 76 square meters, which apparently is the exact size of the average home in the UK and Ireland. So, Shane, I gotta uh, stop you. That is exactly the size of my apartment 76 <laughs> square meters. So, my apartment is the exact same size as the Oval Office. I don't know whether I should be proud of that or not. That's a pretty proud fact. I think. <laughs> yeah, that, that's decent. 76 square meters is a decent bit of room. And when you think of the decisions that kind of come about in that room as well. But you mentioned some of the, the preferences of, of different uh, presidents, Simon. But John F. Kennedy had, you know, naval motifs and seascape paintings. Uh, Clinton had portraits of Roosevelt and, and Lincoln. And George W. Bush had images of his own Texas landscape back home. So kind of things to remind the president of, of homely things. Uh, Trump was more of a copycat. So he, he adopted Reagan's rug, George W. Bush's sofas. He has Bill Clinton's drapery. You know, he used the Resolute desk that Obama uh, adopted as well. Um, the Lincoln bust that Obama had as well. And then he, he interestingly had a portrait of Thomas Jefferson, which was last hung by Lyndon Johnson. So Trump decided to pull this out and, and put the cobwebs off this uh, portrait of Thomas Jefferson. But as you said, they all have this uh, stamp on it as well. And the Secret Service never set foot in there. Uh, they set, they keep guard, I guess, outside. But uh, there are weight-sensitive pressure pads under the carpet in the Oval Office that allow the Secret Service outside to know where the president is at all times in the room, which is quite interesting. Uh, fitted with bulletproof glass, of course, uh, kind of looks out onto the Rose Garden. So a fascinating room. A few secret passages as well. So we can't tell people too much about that. We don't know too much about that, but uh, what a fascinating room. It is worth pointing out, I suppose, that First Ladies traditionally also play a big role in the decoration of the White House. 
Uh, one thing that I did find, I read in a book recently, was that when the Clintons arrived in the White House in, I suppose it would have been January 93, um, to the disgust of the new First Lady, Hillary Clinton, and future presidential candidate, she discovered that um, the only toilet off the Oval Office was a urinal, which spoke to the uh, completely male-dominated uh, history of that office and apparently mm. she took that out and replaced it with a toilet which could be used by both sexes because she believed that one day there might be a president who wasn't a man mm. yeah that's an it like that when you consider there's I think there's 35 bathrooms as well in the White House so when you consider the one closest to the Oval Office is uh, for males only or seemingly for males only, it's quite an interesting one. 35 bathrooms. That's amazing. I wonder, because yeah. Trump is always going on about how many TVs he's put into Air Force One. I wonder, has he laced the White House with TVs now so that he can watch Fox and Friends at any time or any place? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the 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 movie theatre that we talk about, that's another one of the rooms that kind of people know exists but don't really know much about it. So this is the a room Trump has had a bit of a, a stamp on as well so it's 42 seater it's located in the east wing of the white house on the first floor so uh, again uh, presidential requests can be made so movie studios make their films available for screenings upon that presidential request so uh, clearly president uh, filmmakers would love to have their films played in the white house it's a little historical footnote i guess but uh, there were some headlines in 2017 finding dory made headlines for being the first film screened in uh, donald trump's white house so uh, a lot of people kind of pointing out on Twitter that it was uh, at the time quite ironic given uh, Trump's, uh, I guess, executive order against green, heart, green card holders and visa holders and pre-approved refugees, separating families and that sort of thing when, when Finding Dory is, is, is a bit of a tale of environmental alarm and family reunion across continents. So it was quite a quite a choice pick, I think, from Donald Trump's point of view. For sure. Um, tell me about the bowling alley. I'm particularly interested in this because various presidents over the years, various administrations, they have put in uh, various bits of sports equipment that they are particularly fond of themselves. Mm. I mean, there, there's swimming pools, there's gyms, there's the game room as well, which which I'm very jealous of because they have a pool table. I'm a big pool and snooker fan, but uh, various presidents have used that. But you mentioned, yeah, the bowling alley. I mean, this is fascinating. It's uh, it, it's in the basement located under the North Portico. So it includes the, that basement includes the, the carpenter's shop, the engineer's shop, a flower shop, a dentist's. Uh, you've got the Situation Room down there as well, which uh, quite, for quite different purposes. But um, the bowling alley, there was previously one in the West Wing built for, for Harry Truman in 1947. That was for a birthday present, but apparently Truman didn't really like bowling. So whoever picked that birthday present for Harry Truman probably didn't know him too well. But uh, yeah, the bowling alley then added by Richard Nixon in 1969, he loved bowling. So, uh, you know, the bowling lanes first built on the ground floor of the West Wing, as I said, for Truman. But then when Nixon came about, you know, you want to take your stress off. And, you know, if you've got things like the Watergate scandal and Vietnam War swirling around you, what better way than to to take out some of that stress on bowling? But, uh, you know, family members and people, uh, President Trump apparently still encourages the use of the bowling alley by, you know, members of Congress and his immediate staff uh, and friends as well. So a lot of people still use it. It's a single lane bowling alley, quite small. But uh, if those walls could talk, Simon. News Talk's Shane Hannan. Shane, thank you for joining us for Thank You For Calling The White House and you'll be back again next week. Thanks, Simon. That's our lot for today. My thanks to producer Claire Collins and do join us next week as we continue our countdown of the race to the White House.